Pastor Isaac as he comes to share the Word of God with us. Thank you. You may be seated when you get back to your seats. Good morning. Oh, thank you. I wasn't expecting a response, but I appreciate it. Let's try it again. Good morning. I enjoyed that. That was fun. Um, yeah, so this is not the, the, the typical schedule. My name is uh, Isaac Queen. For those of you who I, I say that because I've been seeing faces that I've not necessarily had a chance to get to know or to introduce myself, but my, my name is Isaac Queen. I'm the student pastor here at Graceway Baptist Church. Uh, it's my honor to be able to fill in for Pastor Greg since he's not able to be here with us. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Brother Dale, for leading us in prayer for our pastor. Um, he really is a, a, he's a great leader of not, not just music, but also of helping us to really set our hearts and our minds on the reason that we're here today, and that's to gather together, to be able to come together, share one another's burdens, uh, bear in Christ the, the love that we have for, for each other, but also to not take for granted the ability to open God's Word, study God's Word, and to be able to do that. So we appreciate everyone who's involved in the music, everyone who's involved in what Brother Dale does and the, all the leadership that he has. We're also continue to, to, to think about and pray for, for Pastor Greg. I know he wants to be here very, very badly, um, but the good, good news is um, he's not as bad off because Sammy is here. Um, if, if she was not here, maybe a little bit more urgency, and then there's urgency, there's concern, but she wouldn't just leave him if he was not doing well. Um, so we're glad to, to have her here in attendance as well. If you have a Bible, please go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I do not have a detailed outline for you um, on the screen, but Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is where we'll be, where we will camp out for the duration of this time, and will be the topic of discussion, blessed assurance. Now, there's many different aspects that go into this between our life experiences. There are lots of different directions that we go with this, but there is something about that God has laid upon my heart about addressing the, the, the issue of assurance, knowing definitively, concretely who God is, who we are because of who He is, and living looking forward to the future glory that he will bring us to. Let us pray. I know we just spent time praying for Pastor Greg, but let's pray right now that our hearts, our minds, minimize distractions as best as you can so we can hear as clearly as we can and be able to, to dive into the depth of God's word of the time that we have now together. So let's pray together, and uh, we'll get into Romans chapter 8. Heavenly Father, to you be the glory that you so rightly deserve. To you and to you alone. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, if nothing else describes the life of a born-again believer, it is thankfulness. Lord, where would we be? What would we be? if not for you. Oh, we are thankful for the lives that we have, 
the opposite would be much harder. We are thankful for what we experience in this life, proportionally. The things that are difficult in life and the struggles and the hardships in life that we can't quite make sense of here on earth from a limited perspective. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your mercy. We trust in your righteousness and in your justice. That this will not be the way that it will always be. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken, has chosen to speak to us that we might grow in our knowledge of you in the path of obedience. We thank you. We praise you. And all God's people said, amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. We'll get to it in just a moment. But I wanted to ask a couple quick questions just to kind of get us into the, the frame of mind that Paul is going to be addressing here in just a moment. And the first question is just a, a simple question that seems a little, it seems a little obvious, but it's one that we cannot overlook because it is so foundational to the life of a believer. And it is the question, where is your assurance, your hope, your security anchored? It's anchored somewhere. It's anchored in something. Whatever that may be, and the strength of that depends upon whatever it is anchored to. You will anchor your life to either your career, to your family, to individuals that you hold to high esteem, to your own personal experience, to your own skills, but ultimately, each and every one of those things will fail you. And if you have not experienced that yet, you will. And those of you who have experienced that, you know the truth of that. People let you down. Life is hard. The struggle is real. But how do we have confident assurance in a life that is plagued with limited resources, limited capacity to know things. We can't go anywhere else except to God's chosen revelation through Scripture. This is the foundation because it points us to who God truly is. Where is your hope, your security, your, your assurance anchored this morning, but also not just this morning, because it's really easy to come into a room like this for an hour, two hours, if you were here with us this morning in Sunday school. It's really easy to say that your hope and your assurance is anchored in God, and then go live the rest of the 166, 167 hours of the week as though that didn't even happen. Outside of these walls, where is your anchor what is your anchor in? Where is your assurance? What delivers that to you in a way that will never let you down? Some dangerous words exist within our generation, within our society. Here they are. Absolute. Confidence. Truth. Certainty. Standards. All of those will get very strong pushback 
and very strange looks from many people when you talk about absolute certainty. When you discuss the idea of being confidently assured of something in a life that is plagued with relative truth, it just depends on what you believe. In a world that, in a society that, granted, there is nothing new under the sun, so the, the things that we see within our culture have, are, they're not new. We just see them a little bit quicker because of the internet. We experience them and we have access to them a little bit easier because of the media that we have and the outlets that we have. But there is nothing new under the sun. The, the, the depth of man's wickedness has been felt ever since the rebellion in the garden. It just presents itself differently over the course of human history. But when you talk about absolute assurance and certainty, what standard do you have? What basis do you have to say that? Upon what is that anchored in? And here's the thing about assurance. One of the, one of the most important things that I could, I could communicate to you through what we're going to read here in the Scripture is that the assurance of your salvation is not measured and is not anchored in the intensity of your faith. It is solely anchored on the object of your faith, which is Christ Jesus himself, as revealed to us through Scripture. You cannot base your assurance upon a flash-in-the-pan experience of life and its passions, its desires, its intensities, because eventually that will fade. How many of you were passionate about the fashion that you wore 30 years ago? Some of it's coming back. The styles change, the trends change, culture changes. So you can't, you can't stake your, you can't, you can't drop your anchor in something that's constantly shifting, something that's constantly moving. So when we, when we look at Romans, we have to understand the, the flow, the ebb and flow of this argument that Paul is sending to the Roman believers. It first starts out with understanding that the entire book of Romans is truly about one thing, and it is the righteousness of God, and how that is portrayed, displayed, and presented to us by God so that we can understand what that righteousness is, how that affects us, and where we stand with our relationship with God because he is righteous. In the first chapter, it talks about that the gospel is what is revealing God's righteousness. Romans 1, 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, revealing his righteousness to us. The law reveals our wretchedness, which is the bulk of chapters 2 through 3, or the, the end of chapter 1 through chapter 3 that the gospel reveals God's righteousness, but the law reveals our wretchedness. That we are, in every single possible way, unable to follow after God. Dead in sin, we are criminals, worthy of God's wrath, and of nothing else. The amazing thing is that this righteousness of God and who God is comes to sinners, this righteousness of God comes to sinners by grace through faith. And again, it's not the intensity of that faith. It is the object of that faith. He, he, Paul gives the example of Abraham, of how Abraham, it was credited to, to Abraham as righteousness because of his faith. You and I both know the back and forthness of Abraham. 
You and I both know the fallen tendencies of Abraham. Yeah, he's a great man, but it wasn't the intensity of his faith that was his assurance that credited to him righteousness of God. It was the object of his faith. And then in chapters 6 through where we're going to land at here, we see that the righteousness of God as it is applied to sinners by faith in Christ, it is what carries believers through life's struggles, through the things that we cannot quite wrap our minds around, again, because of our limited perspective and understanding of things, and it is what carries us through onward to the hope of future glory. And the hope of future glory is the righteousness of God. To be made in the image of God, to be conformed to the image of his son, is the greatest good that we could ever desire. So let's get into the text, Romans chapter 31. I'm going to back up real quick, just because of what I just said, to give us a little bit of a framework. I'm going to back up to verse 28. But we're going to look at predominantly 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you're there, say amen. Fantastic. This is what the Word of God says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And he's going to explain that to us. What is that good? Because we have a very twisted, very manipulative view of that from our sinful perspective again. For those who are called according to his purpose. It is this good that he works is specifically designated only for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. The greatest good anyone who is born of God, who has been called according to his purpose, could ever receive in this life is to be conformed to the image of his son. And that takes a lot of different expressions. That, that's shown in a lot of different ways. Let's keep reading. For the purpose of, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's called the golden chain of salvation. And it rests, again, not upon the intensity to which you believe that, but upon the object of our faith, which is Christ Jesus himself, as revealed through Scripture. So then the assurance comes in verse 31. That though the gospel reveals God's righteousness and that the law reveals our wretchedness, how, great, how the righteousness of God comes to sinners by grace through faith, and therefore it is applied to the believers who put their trust in Christ and in Christ alone, we are then carried to this future glory in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Please hear the sincerity and not the arrogance in these statements. This is not a matter of puffing us up as though we have achieved something great. This is predominantly speaking of who God is and what he has done. If God is for us, who can be against us? Three things that we're going to need to keep in mind with this, uh, this text here. Three things that help us to understand these questions and to help us anchor our assurance in in God and in Christ and Him alone. We're going to see the person of God and who He is. We'll see the promises of God and what He decrees. 
and the provision of God and what he does. Those three main anchor points of our assurance are seen in this text as well as in the rest of Scripture, but the person of God, the promises of God, and the provision of God. So verse 31, what then shall he say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him. I want to beat our chests about. We are more than conquerors, yes, but it is through him and him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, I have assurance, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, another translation may say principalities, basically dark forces that exist within our world, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, governments, that kind of thing, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This section is full of questions and answers. And in fact, within the questions, sometimes we find the answers that he's getting to. The questions and answers that he brings up in this section encapsulate the truth that we need to get our eyes off of ourselves off of this world, off of those around us, and fix our eyes truly where they should be, and that is upon Jesus himself. When we look at this section of Scripture, when we even start back at the beginning, he says, what is our response to the fact that we have been saved by grace? Even though we are wretches, we are sinful, we are unrighteous. One of the most terrifying things, we've talked about this with our students, one of the most terrifying things about God is the fact that he is good. Because if he is good, anything that is not him is not. That's one of the consistent teachings throughout all of Scripture, one of the many, that God is good, and therefore we are not, because we are not God. So how can sinful, fallen, completely and totally depraved, completely and totally hopeless individuals such as ourselves have anything to do with this great, mighty God who has created us? It is because of who he is. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? The word if there, if God is for us. Another translation, probably a better way of translating it, probably should be since. The Greek word there can also be translated since God is for us. Who can be against us? We sang earlier about the God of the ages. No one can compare to him. No one can bring anything against him. Those who have tried have failed miserably. Simply in the sense that they're dead, he's not. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, we have to understand that this is anchored in the, in the fact that this is for the children of God. 
Not all of creation, not, not all created beings, you and I, people made in the image of God. We are not all creation of God is the children of God. And that is a foundational point to understand. That yes, we are made in the image of God, so therefore we have worth. Again, it is alien worth. It is not because we are worth of anything to him. Simply because he desired to create us, therefore it is an alien worth. It comes from outside of ourselves. And then also the fact that we have, as, as born-again believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are recreated. So therefore our worth in Christ, as he sees us, and as we'll see here in a moment, how he intercedes for us by his blood to his Father. Again, even that worth does not come from within ourselves. So we need to look past the idea of worth in relation to our God because the only worth we have is what is granted to us by God and it is his worth that is bestowed upon us. Horizontally, though, speaking of, of human experiences and speaking of how it relates to other people, each and every one of us are made in the image of God, therefore worthy of value, dignity, honor, respect, love in terms of how we show it to other people. But in comparison to who God is, not all cre creations of God are children of God. And that is a wonderful thing because, again, that anchors us not in our own feelings, not in our own ideas or intensity of our faith, but it anchors us in who God is. It anchors us in who he says he is, what he decrees. Look at what it says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's weird wording sometimes. You've got you to spend a little bit of time thinking through, what does he mean? Imagine this. The truth of that statement, how he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, who are we apart from Christ but enemies and children of wrath? That frames this in a perspective much easier to understand. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all the way that he views us, the way that we are viewed in him because of our sin, because of our, our wickedness, because of the, the deceitful nature of our hearts and the inherited sin that we have within us and the indwelling sin that we have within us results in a standing and in a nature that is against God and is an enemy of God. And yet what did he do? This righteous, good God, what did he do? He did not spare his own son. He sent his son to his enemies. So if he would do that for his enemies, how much more so will he graciously give to those who are his children? How much sweeter and how much stronger is the anchor for those of us who are his, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? How much more so do we have confidence to boast not in ourselves, but in the grace and in the power and the strength of who God is and what he has decreed and what he has given Verse 33, who shall, then he, he moves into verses 33 and 34 into um, courtroom language, judicial language. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can possibly bring any kind of charge against the ones whom God knows every little bit about? And here's the crazy thing. He knows everything about us. I think about the woman at the well. Jesus knew everything about that woman. How many... Husband she had, 
how she was exchanging relations for dwelling, knew everything about her. And yet when he goes to interact with her, the fact that he even interacts with any creation, when you read the Gospels and Jesus is interacting with anybody, you ought to be amazed. When you read the Scriptures, you ought to be amazed because that is Jesus interacting with us. But when you see in the woman at the well, Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman, revealing these things to her that she herself did not even know about herself. She goes back into the town and says, come meet a man. Basically, the summary of her statement was, come meet a man who knew everything about me and yet wants to know me more. I think about the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Just flip the words around a little bit. Jesus knows me, this I love. Because we see earlier in Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is an amazing, miraculous thing that enemies of God, that children of wrath can at any point have anything to do with God and not just be, not just be acknowledged by God, but to be welcomed into his own presence and to be adopted as his to the point that we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we have. Again, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who legally declares the debt has been paid. He clears our record. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Who can possibly condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus, a better way of saying this, Christ Jesus is the one who was condemned. Christ Jesus was the one who was crucified. He doesn't just leave it at that. He anchors it even deeper in the strength of the crucifixion, which is the resurrection. Yes, he was crucified. He was condemned for us in our place. More than that, though, he was raised. He is not just raised, but he is seated at the right hand of God. His position in heaven is the conquering king. And he intercedes for us by his blood. Who shall separate us from this God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall difficulty, depression, disasters, disease, danger, discouragement, death, None of these things have the power that God has. He quotes from Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the natural experience of, of, the, of sinful fallen man. There are two ways that Scripture refers to in the New Testament to the flesh. The flesh can either refer to the sinful fallen desires that are corrupted by the nature that we have, or it is simply regarding the fact that we live in a fallen physical world. 
corrupted by sin. We are not victims here. It is not as though we have something to to argue when we get into the courtroom of God and have some way to stand before him and say, it wasn't my fault. Adam and Eve tried that. We see how that worked out. Wife ate us out of house and home. Just teasing. But what shall, we, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? What has that power? What has that assurance? What has that certainty? And Paul says nothing. Not one single thing. We need to understand that this is connected to the, to the golden chain. We can't, we can't divorce what we see here about the future glory that we experience, what is waiting for us on the other side of eternity, we can't neglect the fact that this is because of God has works all things to the good of those who love him for a called according to his purpose, those whom he has foreknown, he has predestined, those whom he has predestined, he has called, called, justified, justified, glorified. It is anchored in him, and this is in who he is and what he has says and what he says he will do. Foreknowledge is not based upon activities or events within human history. Foreknowledge is based upon personal understanding and decree from God, from His goodness, and from His Word. Paul anchors the conclusion in the true power of the crucifixion, which is the resurrection, understanding who Christ is and His position and how He intercedes for us on our behalf. So who shall separate us? Who's strong enough to take us away from from Him? I think about Daniel chapter 3 with their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's their Babylon names, and I find it interesting that we refer to them by the names that the world gave them rather than the names that God ordained them to have, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah, but Rack, Shack, and Benny sounds a lot more fun. Um, but Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah, they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar because they will not bow down to the golden statue. They will not bow down and worship the God of Nebuchadnezzar. So when they're brought forward and about to be thrown into the fiery furnace... What is their response? Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's, that's a bold move. That's a, okay. Like, what do you have to say to that? We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if we truly get thrown into the, into the, into the furnace that you've stoked so heavily that you think that you know, somehow your fire can take us out of God's favor, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he doesn't. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we know the story. We know what happens after that. You've seen the veggie tales. <laughs> Thrown into the fiery furnace. So hot that the people that throw them in die. When they come out, they don't even smell of smoke. They came out, which is also an amazing thing. Who is in the furnace, though, with them? This is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. 
Because God can deliver us. God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't here on earth, this earth is not the standard. This earth is not all that there is. In fact, this earth is the footstool of our king. Paul says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Because to be a conqueror means that you had to have achieved something greater than that that is outside of you. For a king to conquer, he has to send forth his army, and sometimes they would fight themselves. But a king would send forth an army in order to conquer someone, and they would be able to say, hey, we conquered this people. He says, no, you're more than conquerors because you didn't have anything to do with it. You're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I, am neither, for I am sure that certainty, that assurance, it's not arrogance, it's assurance. Not founded on the strength and the intensity of this man's faith. And this is probably the most noble of Christians to date, Paul himself. But even he himself realizes and acknowledges his fallenness and his sinfulness, so much so to where he calls himself the chief of sinners. It can't be measured our assurance can't be measured by the intensity of your faith. It has to be measured by the object of your faith. I'm certain neither death nor life, angels, rulers, demons, all these things. And interesting thing enough, in verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Who does that exclude? The God himself, who has already stated his position of those who are in him as justified, foreknown, called, predestined, justified, glorified. I know I got those back up, but anyways, that is who he is. It's so interesting that we listen to the words of the father of lies. We so, we so readily listen to the words of a liar than we listen to the promises of who God is and what he has said. And I get it, I do the same thing. I, the reason that assurance is so difficult for so many of us is because you and I both know the sins and the struggles that we deal with on a daily basis. Am I right? Assurance can sometimes be so difficult for us because we know how wretched we truly are. The amazing thing is, though, God knows and he justifies so that we might not have arrogance, but that we might have assurance in our pursuit of him, regardless of what we struggle with, regardless of our sins. God is exempt here, but what are some of the, oppon the opponents of, of assurance? I love the fact that in Sunday school, um, the students are going over something a little bit different, but I love that the, uh, the idea of sin was brought up. Because in order to understand assurance, we have to understand the opponents of assurance, which is the fact that we have an inherent sin nature passed down to us, um, through Adam. That's covered in Romans chapter 5. We have an imputed sin, which means that the, 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 the punishment and the condemnation for our sin has been credited to us, to our account, because of our fallenness in Adam. But also, we're not just victims here. Again, you're not a victim because somebody way back when, Adam and Eve, sinned, and therefore you're, you're a sinner. We have an indwelling sin nature as well, to where we are fallen and we desire what we want. 
We replace the truth of God with what he has created. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We know the truth. Every person in this room, every person on the planet, past, present, future, however long the Lord allows it to be, every person knows who God is because they have clearly not only seen him, but they clearly know him because God has put it within them and they suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. This is what fuels our personal insecurities when it comes to assurance. The fact that we know our sins, we know our struggles better than anyone else, but a right doctrine of sin and fallenness and humanity leads us to understanding the true gift of grace. It can't be a gift if it's not grace. Grace cannot be a gift if it has anything to do with you. In fact, the personal insecurities and imperfections within our lives and within our hearts are the only footholds that the devil and the enemy have in your life. The devil does not cause you to sin. Newsflash. No one goes to hell because the devil sends them there. The only person who sends, it's a message I heard a long time ago, the only person who sends Isaac Queen to hell is Isaac Queen. Personal insecurities and imperfections are the footholds that the devil and the enemies use to cripple or derail us in our pursuit of being conformed to the image of Christ. Understanding that leads to a lot of freedom. Knowing that you can't fully live up to the perfect standard of Christ on this side of heaven and therefore living dependently on him to do that in you and through you is the result of life-changing sanctification. And that sanctification is the evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you because that is the guarantee. Daily dying to self as an act of worship to God that Romans that Paul gets to in Romans chapter 12 the act of worship to God is the purest form of joy Christians can experience on this side of heaven carrying us along to the future glory Hebrews chapter 12 mentions that Paul himself mentions in Philippians 1 to live as Christ and to die as gain this is what life looks like to live for Christ, and it is plagued by our insecurities, by our imperfections, our sins, and our struggles. So we have to have a healthy doctrine of what Scripture teaches regarding the means through which God grants and produces supernatural joy within us. He produces that within us through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. I get it. I, I, I I understand the, the temptation to, to, to not have that assurance, to have those doubts, to have those struggles, to think, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, I don't know if this, is, if this describes you at all, but how do I know that I'm saved? Isaac, I continue to struggle in the same ways that I used to when I, before, I was, before I professed Christ, before I walked the aisle, before I had my baptism, whatever it may be. I continue to sin, I don't feel like I'm a Christian if I continue to sin. How, how can I know that I am saved? Somebody who I used to look up to in the faith has now apparently walked away from it, and I don't, I don't know where that leaves me. I don't know what that does for me. There are so many things about my life that, that I'm, I'm just too convicted and too, too uncertain about to know if I really am saved. The gospel is not about 
your intensity of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Do you desire to know God? Do you desire to love God? Do you desire to follow God? Do you desire to be in right relationship with God? Do you desire to love others who are made in the same image of God that you are? Here's the truth. People who are not God's, people who are not being worked on by the Holy Spirit and being brought along in the path of sanctification do not have those desires. That only exists within the lives of true, genuine, born-again believers. I heard one quote that I thought was interesting. Faith isn't just believing in God. It is believing God. It's not a holy hoping for the best. A jump into the darkness hoping that something is on the other side. But with full confidence and assurance we can anchor our life in Christ. Some important takeaways that we can see from, from this scripture, see from the rest of scripture as well. First and foremost starts with anchoring our assurance in surrendering to Christ. Surrendering to him as Savior and Lord by faith and repentance. The gospel is about faith and repentance. Those of you in this room who have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will believe who he is one day. What I urge you to do is to hear the chosen means by which God, ha God uses to bring about salvation, which is the proclamation of his word, and turn to Christ now to receive his forgiveness, to receive true freedom in this life, to be liberated from bondage, to, be, to, to surrender to him as Lord and Savior by faith and repentance, but also to submit. Submit your life, your goals, your desires to his rule and his reign. He gets to call the shots. If you've ever lost something... You don't get to be God. Keys, wallet, phone, child, hopefully not a child. I know, I get it. Home Depot's a big place. What else do we do? We spend time getting to know God through his chosen means to be known, which is his word. It requires repenting of sin, areas in our lives that he calls sin. Sometimes we don't read the word. Sometimes we're, we're, we're confused about our assurance. We're, we're struggling with our assurance because we're not in the word because we know what we're going to get when we read his word. We're going to get conflict because the way that I want to choose to live my life is going to conflict with what God's calling me to do. Overcoming insecurities means waging war against sin. Not just pleading the victim or the martyr card, but waging war against sin. Set aside every sin. This is Hebrews 12. Set aside every sin and every weight that keeps you from running the race that he has called you to run. He mentions sin, absolutely. But why does he mention every weight? Because there are things that weigh us down. There are things that distract us. There are things that derail us. There are things that hinder us from running the race with endurance that he's called you to run. Next thing, stop trying to run someone else's race in their place or for them. You can't do it. 
you will not give an account for their life, you will give an account for yours. Parents, teachers, Christians in general, you cannot live someone else's faith as much as you would like to. Stop trying to run their race and pursue Christ in true freedom of how he's called you to run your race. The comparison game has to, be, has to end. Because we're going to think, well, my, my love for Christ, my love for his word doesn't rival, doesn't match the same love that that person has. There's a difference between using someone as an example to challenge you and comparing your life and your faith to theirs. Because again, it's not the intensity of your faith. It is the object of your faith that saves. We need to support and serve Christ's bride, the church. One great uh, illustration I heard recently was um, being involved in the local church is like having a boat and scraping all the barnacles off of it. Serve, love, support the church by scraping the barnacles off. Don't just set the, church, set the boat on fire and think, well, I'll take care of it. Deal with the struggle. Deal with the messiness. Follow after Christ. Lastly, stumbling forward in the path of obedience to Christ produces greater urgency and greater dependency on the grace, love, truth, and strength of God. I'm talking about stumbling forward in the path of obedience. The sin that plagues us, the sin that trips us up, the temptations that we have, we need to see the temptations to sin as a way of showing to ourselves that Christ satisfies where sin only gratifies. It rhymes, so it's important. But every temptation to sin is an opportunity to prove to yourself that, sin, that Christ satisfies far more than sin will ever gratify you because it'll be momentary, and it'll let you down. It'll feel good in the moment, whatever it may be, chocolate, shopping, people's opinions, politics, family, they will let you down. It may feel good for a moment, but they will let you down. Anchor your assurance in Christ. I want to close with this. I heard this comparison I thought it was worth sharing. We're going through Exodus, and it's been a, a, a couple months since we read about the ten plagues. Tenth plague was, or all the other plagues, but the tenth plague was probably the most devastating, the loss of the firstborn son of each home that did not have the blood on the door. Imagine, because I know that there had to have been some, imagine two of them, two fathers, two, two households, and one is confident now what's going to happen at the, at when, when, the, when the angel of death sweeps through the land of Goshen and sweeps through all of Egypt? One man is confident, I'm going to put this blood on this doorpost. I know that we're going to be protected. I know that it's going to happen. And you have another one. They're not as confident. And so as they apply the blood, it's, I, I, don't, I really hope that this works. I, I, I'm not as confident as that person, but... I, I'm going to do it because he told me to do it. That night when the angel of death swept through that land, which of those families lost their firstborn son? Neither. Because it is not the intensity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you.
And right now I call those who do not know Christ to repent, to put your faith and your trust in Christ and in Christ alone because your time is running out. I do not believe in pushing fear, but I do believe in the urgency of trusting Christ. I do believe in the assurance of salvation. I do believe in the joy of those who are his being experienced on this side of heaven and one day it will be like nothing else we could ever imagine. Let's pray. We'll conclude this service. Father, to you and to you alone be the glory. For you are holy and we are not. You are good and we are not. And yet, despite our sin, despite our nature that wants nothing to do with you, you decreed from eternity past that you would be glorified in the just punishment of unrepentant sinners, but also glorified in the gracious extension of justification by faith through sinners who put their trust in you. Lord, there are aspects of that that we will never get to know and that you do not, you're not required to tell us how that works. But we are called to be faithful. We are called to live according to your word in the path of obedience, and that will result in us falling. I think about Paul when he says, the good that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do are the things that I keep on doing. He himself struggled with sinful natures and just struggles with the limitedness of our fallen physical world. But there is now no, no longer, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you justify. Because you are righteous. Your righteousness is applied to us through repentance and faith in the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and he doesn't just sit idly by he is interceding for us on our behalf now so that even though death depression disease danger we experience these things in our daily lives those things do not have more power than you and we can have assurance thank you Lord and so you let me pray amen